0: You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you something, people. I saw my guest when I was a sophomore in high school perform at the Spectrum with a Who in 1979. And then I saw him again when I was a freshman in college with The Who at JFK Stadium in Philadelphia, and he's had such a great career from the Small Faces, the Faces, the Law, the Jones Gang. He's a, he's a big guy. Uh, he's a big polo guy, too, which I want to hear about because that's <laughs> fascinating. And my guest is Kenny Jones. How you doing, Kenny? Hi. Uh, yeah, I'm,
1: I'm doing great, apart from a slight sinus infection, so that's why I'm talking through my nose. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I want to talk about your career, but you got to tell me about the polo because you don't hear about rock stars that are like, I know you own a polo ground, or how'd you get into this whole polo world? Well, people ask me that all the time, and they say, How'd you get into polo? I said, Well,
1: if you go turn the clock back years into the early 60s, right? And when we formed the Small Faces, it was Steve Marriott's fault that I got into polo because basically we were rehearsing one day in, in a pub in the East End. It was a boiling hot day like it is today in England. And uh, he came in and he said, it's, it's too warm to, uh, it's such a lovely day. I, I'll fix this up um, riding, horse riding in Epping Forest. And I said, great, I've never been on a horse before. So we all tried up to Epping Forest and uh, we got on these horses and uh, I stayed on, they fell off.
0: <laughs> I loved it, I, to, like a duck to water. So, you just from that, you just fell in love. And then, how do you trans go from being a, riding a horse it, to polo?
1: Well, what happens is so I started show jumping and doing lots of different things, sporty sports stuff. And I was riding every day, fell in love with just riding. And later in the years, I, I saw, discovered polo. And I, that was it. I was hooked straight away. Then I ended up um, building my own polo club on the part of my land. And then I put polo fills in and invited Prince Charles down to play for Prince's Trust. And um, it went on like that for years.
0: Now, you also played with some uh, musicians, right? Some other musicians, you got them in the polo? Yeah, no,
1: Mike, I R- have got Mike Rutherford into riding. <laughs> He'll never forgive me because he fell off and he's all smashed his teeth out. <laughs> <laughs> and also, uh, Steve, 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 uh, what's that? Oh,
0: sure, Copeland, sorry. So, okay, I want to talk. Now, I've heard there's new Faces music in the midst. What's up with that?
1: The new Faces stuff is basically just before the pandemic, We was coming up to our 50th anniversary. So we were planning something, to do something quite well. We don't, didn't know. But we're going to sort of release a, an album of some sort and celebrate our 50th anniversary for the fans, yeah. And so sort of that got delayed, put on the back burner, put on the back burner, put on the back burner, because it went on for like three years. So so it's now, we've still got to do it. So we decided to get together and do part, Woody and I came up with a load of tracks. So I had a load of tracks and started running. So we combined the two and we started working on them. Then we got running and he sang on a few. And then it kind of, we're still working on it a little bit now. So... We've done about 12 tracks so far. But uh, it's part, partly back catalog stuff, partly some old songs we've done, and some new stuff. So it'll be, there'll be two separate albums, really. One on back catalog stuff with some bonus tracks. Now, and another one, which is a new track,
0: new, new album. Now, what's it like playing with those guys again? You know, it's been a long time. I mean, it's it must be, the magic must still be there, or else you wouldn't be doing it. But, I mean, what is it like when you, you're older, you're more mature, or you're probably your songwriting has all changed. What is it like?
1: It's just like having a party again. It's. I have to ask my liver what's it like. <laughs> no, me and, uh, Rod said to me, you haven't given up drinking, have you, Kenny? I said, no, he went, thank God for that. <laughs> so, so Ronnie and I, so so Rod and I, We, we I, I, mean, I like a drink now and again. It's never bothered me at all. I've not got a problem with it. The only problem I've got with drinking is, if I can't get hold any. <laughs> but uh, Ronnie, we... I only gave up drinking over eight years ago now, along with other other stuff. I'm so proud of him because he really stuck to his guns, and he needed to. He needed to get clean, you know. So that's a, that's the shape of things. So Woody now is in better shape than Rod and I.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what a turnaround! <clears throat> is it is it fun though? I mean, is, is it is it magical like feeling that like back from when it's. Is it like reliving your youth somewhat because you? It has you know,
1: it's, it's it's great because basically, look, I mean, we used to. We every year we get together like three or four times a year anyway, especially at Christmas. So we cause cool a habit wherever we go, and it's great seeing each other. It's like going back in time. It's like so. It's like it's like time never moved on, you know. So we have a great time being with each other, a bit fooling around and having a great time talking about things. So it's kind of. We've never saw, sort of not seen each other. So it's it's uh, not like a, we're just getting together after all these years. We've been seeing each other a lot lost during during the years, but to actually get in the studio again
0: is is uh, it's quite exciting. Now, how did your career start? You've been you're I mean you're a legendary drummer. You've been with you know these bands. You're a hall of famer. My, bro- my older brother played drums, and I remember I used to hate it because my parents set it up in, in, the, in, the, in the den, and I would be trying to watch TV, and he'd be practicing. Finally, I moved him to the basement, but the problem is our basement would flood it, so they took the ping-pong table down to elevate my brother's drums, so I couldn't watch TV. I couldn't play ping-pong, so I was pissed at the drums. But my brother was a really good drummer. How did you, when did you start playing the drums?
1: Well, it goes back many years when I was a little boy growing up in the east end of London. And uh, my, my one of my uncles was a, a band leader. He couldn't play a note of music, by the way. He used to lead the band round the, the streets of London, the Catholic bands. And uh, he was kind of a, 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 had a big feather hat, you know, like white feathers uh, and a big mace. And he he go left, right, and so throw the mace in the air. And behind him was the band. Behind him directly was a row of side drummers. So I used to walk alongside the side drummers when I was like six or seven, all the way through, you know. And then I pretended I was a, one of the side drummers, which is great fun. Then I used to rush back to my father's, my father was a bit of a part time carpenter. So I used to rush back to my father's shed and he had a box of tin box of um, um, nails. So I used to fold the nails out, tip the box upside down, and get two bits of firewood to start playing it. So that's how I go into drumming.
0: So, when do you start getting on and playing with a kit? I mean, you know, you, so it's something to go from playing with nails. I mean, when well, did you start getting... Well, what happened was, uh, in, in the East End when I was you know, growing
1: up as a young kid, about 12 years old, I remember seeing this banjo, which is for sale, because uh, my, my mate said to me, we should form a skiffle group. I said, what's a skiffle group? He said, well, you get a tea chest. And you get a broom end of stick it in one side uh, and then a piece of string and put it to the other corner and plonk it like that, put it tight. And that makes the sound of a bass. I went, oh, OK, great. Then he said you get your grandmother's um, washboard, which we had in, we grew it in the East End just after the war, the washboard, and you get your grandmother's fit, thimbles, from his saying kit, put them on your fingers and start strapping sh- sh- up and down. I thought the guy was nuts. and he described all this. But I, I said, he said, there's a skiffle group on TV tonight. So we went, I so said, we, we, that evening we watched the TV, waiting for the TV show to start. And it was, rock, um, Lonnie Donegan came up, singing Rock on the Line. And I fell in love with the banjo. I loved the sound of it, loved the way he played it, loved the song, Rock on the Line. And so I remember, ne- next day. I remember, we walked, went up to this pawn shop in the, in the east end of London. And it was at this... Banjo has been in the window for like three months. We get there and the banjo had gone. So I said to the guy, Where's the banjo? He said, It's gone. He said, No, the guy, it's a pawn shop. He's coming, he's paid for it, it's gone. He's it's paid for it, it's gone. So we'll get it back. So I said, he said, I can't get it back. He said, He said, He said, So we left there and my, my mate said, to me On the way back, he said, You're quite upset about that. And I said, Yeah, I love the sound of the banjo. And he said, well my mate's got a drum kit. So i get him to bring it over this afternoon. I said, Yeah, great. So later on that day, this knock on my door and his mate brought this what I thought was a drum kit, wasn't it? It turned out to be turned out to be a floor tom tom. No half a bass drum, two sticks, one of them which was broken off. And we spent most of the afternoon trying to glue these sticks together before us, super glue, anything like that, and it never worked. So I ended up playing on these bits of drums. With one and a half six, you no, know, and so that's how I got into it. And then I, so I thought I've got to get a proper drum kit. So, I, my, my cousin told me about a shop in the East End called the J 60s It's right near where, Before I met Ronnie Lane. Ronnie Lane bought his guitar there, and uh, and uh, so I went and bought this drum kit.
0: Was, <clears throat> I found a receipt for it last year. How much it was, was it?
1: Sixty-four pounds, thirteen shillings and tuppence—an
0: <laughs> <laughs> old money. <clears throat> so, and it, so you get the drum kit. Now, how do you start a band? Because you, you're you're a long you're a long way from the uh, the plucker or whatever you call it, and, and the washboard. How does how's your first band get started?
1: Well, what happened was I, I got the drum kit. So, cutting a long story short, I was nicking ten pounds out of my mother's purse to pay for the purchase. <laughs> I'll play the back later, don't worry. <clears throat> so uh, I heard about this um, a jazz band playing locally in a local pub. So I went off to see them. Uh, they played every Friday. By this time, I've been playing for a couple of months, uh, teaching myself in the mornings and lunchtimes and in the evening. Um, so, And I went up to this pub and I looked at, looked at, sat in front of this drummer, whose name was Roy. He had, a, he had a microphone in, in front of him, so like an old wrestler. You remember the old square ones? came right through his, between his legs and, and the snare drum, uh, and he had his arms out like around it like that and started singing. I thought, oh, I've never seen this singing drummer. So uh, I watched him play, and then he, 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 he'd play like this. He'd play, hang on, he played. Uh. play, boom, cha, boom, cha, 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 And go, every time he did the fill, he'd blink his eyes, you know, all the way around because and and it's infectious I didn't realise it was infectious so I, I I, when he had a break he came over to me and he said you're taking the piss out of me I said what what are you talking about he said why do you keep blinking at me I said well go oh. because you you blink that's so probably why I'm blinking he said no I don't I went oh God. so we got, we got to know each other very quickly <laughs> uh, for a few weeks passed and I went and well, went up to watch him again, and then he said, "Right, this we've got a very special drummer going to get on to on, play it tonight. So got a young drummer going to play." I thought, "Great, I can see another drummer play it, fantastic!" And he introduced me. I mean, what? So said, I found myself walking on stage, looking at these guys. it was a jazz fan, and luckily, I was. I know one of the records I was learning to play drums so it was Twelve Street Rag. So I do you know. So I kind of had the jazz beat in my soul. So the guys looked at me, and they, when, they, when I sat down, they they looked like three big giants, like massive. And I thought, God. And then he said, right, OK, really? one, two, one, two, three. And it sounded like to me at that time, one, two, everything went into slow motion and all of a sudden I found myself playing and I, uh, it was like breaking all ties with the earth like the umbilical cord I was just having a ball never played with a band in a band before in my life no I just loved it so much it was great that's how I got into band and afterwards I am sitting there shaking afterwards trying to drink my half, half a lager and pretending I was old enough to drink <laughs> but spilling the beer everywhere and uh, I was shaking so much and this guy comes up and he said the barman he said he said, "Kenny, that was." He said, "That was really, really good. I really liked it." He said, "Are you in the band?" I said, "No, I'm forming one now." He said, "Well, my 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 brother's just bought a guitar. Been playing it for a couple of weeks now. Should I, get, should I bring him down to meet you?" I said, "Yeah." So the next week went past. The doors open in this pub, and there, and this guy, the barman walks down. behind him was this guy, uh, and he's, he's it was his brother, and it it was Ronnie Lane. And so Ronnie get we we did straight back I started laughing at him because he wore a gray suit and this and it's a tie. he looked really smart, lovely, but every time he told his tie was so big the tie would stay there and he'd turn his head like that, <laughs> so <laughs> so I started laughing at him so anyway so anyway, so we got together and so we we'd come over to my place and we'd play with his hand for a and we'd play, then I'd get on a bus and take parts of my drums on a bus to, to where he lived. And we went on to so did that for a few weeks and we formed a band called The Outcasts, And we got a few gigs. And Ronnie Lane sent me one day, I said, I don't really I don't really want to play league guitar anymore, because Ronnie used to play like this. He used to play you Yeah yeah, solo. And like the Chuck Berry sort of river and they go, Dee, 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 dee. <laughs> so, He's trying to play lead guitar, so he said, no, I want to play bass. I said, great, let's go to the shop where I bought my drum kit by chance and you bought your guitar, see what they've got. So this one Saturday morning, Ron and I went up there and there's all these drums up and bits and bobs. And this young guy came up to us, really cocky, you know, quite helpful. He said, what do you want? I I said, he wants to buy a bass. So, oh, come with me, I'll show you a bass. So, I, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a drum kit. I thought, oh, so I sat behind it and I started to play it while these guys were messing about with basses. So, I'm from, like, this, started to play. Saturday morning, everyone's, the shop's really busy. So, I'm caught, we're now causing havoc now because So, Ronnie Lane started joining me, and this, this other guy started to play on guitar. And that was Steve Marriott. So, we invited Steve to, to our gig with the Outcasts that night. And so um, we took him to the gig and we we asked him to sing. And he said, yeah, come and join me. So ended up, Steve jumped on the top of the piano, jumped on the keys, started playing the keys with his feet and doing great balls of fire, stuff like that, you know. And so went down a stormy, lovely, and of course the landlord didn't like his piano being broken up, his old upright. So he kind of stopped us and threw us out of the pub. So the rest of the band won't talk to us. So they all went off. And we it's over Tower Bridge in the east end of London, yeah, where Michael Caine was from see? so it's got like probably a regular there, you know and uh, so we're sitting on outside the pub on, on Ronnie's guitar case, my drum my, my drum case sitting there, and the three of us looked at each other, burst out laughing, and I swear to God that was the birth of the small faces
0: now once you guys put together how did you start becoming popular i mean it's like i always laugh now because you know someone can put something on social media and it can get thousands of likes but back then you had to do the hard work you had to play gigs how, how did you guys get to the point of popularity did it take you a while i mean what was your track well it's it's like a a whirlwind
1: hit us because it really happened quite quickly i mean we, we had a few gigs we've gone up and down england in in an old van trying to get gigs. And we, one of the gigs we tried to get, we were starving. We broke down in Sheffield and we met this guy. So we said to this young girl, is there any club's around? He said, yeah, it's one called The Mojo. So we knocked on the door and this guy opened the door and he said, said, we'll play for nothing. We just, we're starving. We just want to eat some food. You know, we'll play for nothing. And that guy was Peter Stringfellow. Peter Stringfellow and opened up Stringfellow's nightclub, in, in, in quite popular. And also, he, later on, we found, he, we got to know him quite well because um, shortly after that, uh, we built up a following in uh, a club called the London Cavern, in, uh, in, in just off Leicester Square. And we built up this following over a period of about sort of six weeks. So by that time, the world had got around to, to the music industry, which was fairly small in those days. Um, so we went, went. One of these gigs we we're playing, and then suddenly this guy comes up to us. And his name was Patrick Meehan, and he, he said, "I work for Don Arden." He said, "I'm Don Arden's partner." He said, "Don Arden's a big manager," and he said, "He wants to, He wants to, you to come up and talk to him. He wants to think of the manager managing you." He said, "No, that's all right, mate. We don't want to know about that sort of shit. We're, 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 not, we're just playing for fun." So the next day we, we, we had a chat and we went up there to his office and they met with Don Arn. Don Don Arden was like a big teddy bear. He thought he was a a really a a hood, you know. A gangster. no way he was a gangster. On my side of the family they were gangsters, so not his side. So but uh so it pretended it pretended he was like one of those. And he, he, said, I was, I was, he said, I was an opera singer as well. So he started singing, oh! <laughs> so, so, anyway, he said, look, I'm going to sign you, boys. I love the look of you. I love your sound. He said, but he said, I can give you a deal. He said, I'll give you a wage. Or I'll give you a percentage of, of uh, the records and stuff like that. So we said, "Look, well, we need to have a chat. So we went outside, came back, came back, and we had a chat and he said, he said, right, have you thought about it? He said, yeah. I said, we want both. <laughs> so we want a rage, and we want a percentage of the royalty. Don't forget, we we're only young kids. I mean, I, I was only, well, I was, uh, I was just 15. Um, and, uh, and Steve was a bit one year older than me. Ronnie was two years older than me. And we had this other guy in the band called Jimmy Winston. His real name is Jimmy Langwood. His mum and dad had a pub, so we used to roast in there. That's where we all went off, also running, turning the clock back. So, anyway, so, so uh, yeah, so we all signed on the dotted line. And, and he, before he said, I've got this guy called Ian Sammer. Uh, you should get together with him. And Ian was a, a, an original member of the, the Shadows years ago. So we got together with Ian in, in, in IBC Studios in London at uh, Portland Place and we are just playing away and he said I've got this song called What You Gonna Do About It he, he'd written it with Mo Schumann so he said right okay uh, let's see if we can do it and the, on the on the um, the engineer in IBC Studios at that time so i go have a drink of water There's none other than Glyn Johns Glyn you know, we got along with Glenn straight away, so we recorded this song called "What Gonna Do About Before we know it, it was it was I don't know it's happened so quick. <clears throat> we, had, uh, we
0: recorded two tracks A and B side, and it was we had a hit record. It was like fourteen in the charts straight away. So you're fifteen. I mean. It's like you can't even get into pubs. I mean, what's that like to be 15? I just said it happened like a, like a tornado. And there you are. And
1: it's, 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 funny enough, I'm still in that tornado because I, I am now I'm going, what, what,
0: what's happened? <laughs> so so the, the small faces, you start getting popular. So how are you guys working together as a band? Because 15, 16, 17... That's ages, you know. We go through a lot of shit. I mean, you know, and it, we, males, we we change. I mean, what was it like for you guys dealing with success at such, a, I mean, such a young age?
1: Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, mean, I was I was fifteen when we released really, so it. I was 16 when we, had, when we had the record going up the charts. So all, all I remember was just leaving school. So <laughs> so I I never looked back. I mean, it was. It kind of you. Kind of, you kind of say. Some people ask me, "Say, what, when did you leave home?" I said, "Well, I left home when I formed a band. Basically, <laughs> I've never been back since."
0: So the small faces are popular, and what? Ha- so what happened with you guys? Did you just grow out of each other because you were getting older and you wanted different views, or what uh,
1: happened? I tell you what. So when we did our uh, 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 sort of uh, bi- biographies of how many tracks we've done over the years. You know? And I was astounded. I couldn't believe how many songs we'd actually recorded in such a short, short time, because we were only together for about four and a half years. But hundreds of hundreds of songs. And uh, so I think, to be honest, we, by this time we'd, we'd come f- through uh, two record labels, uh, Decca, and then we went with Andrew Oldham on Immediate Records, where we made a big breakthrough. And, and I used to do sessions... So anything I learned, I went to play with big bands as well, and uh, doing sessions. So any, all these big fills, I ended up taking them back to the band. And so, like, so by the time we did um, it, uh, Here Come The Nice and you know, um, Green Circles, we had big fills in it. And Ogden's not not I kind of was, was branching out as a drummer, you know. We, all, we all actually were actually getting better and better individually. So until we did Ogden's Not Gone Flake and when we finished Ogden's Not Gone Flake, we thought, okay, how, I think in the back of our all our minds was, how are we bloody are we gonna follow this? So like, I mean Steve also don't forget all the way through this, we had nothing else but screaming, screaming fans like Beatle Mania, it's like small faces mania. So we couldn't hear ourselves play when we when we did any gigs. You know, it's kind of nuts. I mean you get over the adulation, you know, you think got quite nice at first then it really gets on your on your nerves so I think it got it got to Steve we can never lose this, this teeny bobber image until one day at Crystal Palace was one of our gigs at Christmas Steve just threw his guitar down and said I've had enough of this we walked off stage and that was it left us there on our own and we were right in the middle of the tour I should end up finishing but the thing is Steve, it got to Steve, I mean, it got to us all, but he, he didn't have to throw his guitar down, and we'll go
0: and do that, but he did. So, so, okay, so you guys, you're done with it. So then how do the Faces come about? Because once again, they became a huge group. I mean, what was your musical what direction were you looking in when you started The Faces? I'm sure you wanted to get away from that teeny bopper image because I'm sure as you said you can't hear yourself play, there's everyone screaming, they're not really appreciating you as much as you should be appreciated so when you put The Faces together, did you have a goal of what you were going to do? Well, we didn't The the Faces happened by
1: accident because basically being on immediate records and managing the Stones of course we got to know Keith and Mick and the Stones and Charlie and everybody. And of course, they had, a, they had a warehouse in Bermondsey, not far from the pub, we got thrown out of the And uh, he said, Well, look, we've got a little soundproof room down there. Why don't you get together and just use it till you know what you're doing? And so the Stones were really, you know, really generous with us, so they were great mates. So we were, every week we were down this in Bermondsey Street in, in an old warehouse where the Stones kept all their equipment. So after a while, we're just jamming away, and suddenly um, Ronnie, Ronnie Lane brought his new next door neighbor down. That was Ronnie Wood. So we're sitting there we're playing and jamming away again. So, and I'm, you know, you see, drummers have like the best scene in the house, and sitting there, and, and also you can hear any mistake and you know, what's going on. <laughs> so you got Woody, he was he's, he's, he's a great bass player. I mean, he's a wonderful bass player with the back group, so I knew it, all about him. But he was just—he didn't want to play bass anymore. A bit like Ronnie Lamery, it's one of those again. I want to play guitar. Reverse, reverse psychology. So Woody's playing away, right? and this went on for a couple of weeks, and then uh, until Ronnie Wood brought down his best mate, which happened to be Rod Stewart. Mark, Rod was only not in the band. He just he came down just just to have a bit of fun. And so he sat on the ends sat on the on the on the fly casing. and just watched us jam away and then can't, can't, we after we had you know a few we had a couple of breaks during the evening, so we had, there's a pub called the Bermondsey arms or in Bermondsey Street, and we went up the pub and they had a drink or two, so this turned into a regular occurrence you know? so then one day I said, "Well, you know it's all very well jamming, but we have got a time." We've got to try and sing, you know. Got to, you know, and because of course Ronnie, I knew what Ronnie Lane's voice was like. It was, it was fantastic, wonderful voice. Uh, but we all miss that powerful voice of of Steve Marrow what he sang, Max sang. I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a sudden, I'm looking on the side. I said Steve Riddell I knew what a great singer he was. So we went. One of these breaks, we went up the pub, and I said. Put me on around Rod and I did an Adam Faith on him. Fancy a drink? <laughs> so I saw i the other bar and I said, uh, Do you fancy joining the band? He said, Oh, I said, Do you, do you think that the, the other band, the, you know, the rest of the guys would let me? I said, Of course they will. So I went that evening. Alvin Lee, by chance, was having a party, like a few drinks in a bit of ash and all that shit, ran at his muse house at the back of Harley Street. So I said to the rest of the guys, can I have a word? So I went upstairs, as if I a private word. So I've asked Rod to join the band. Oh, we don't want another premium donor in the band. We don't want another one going to walk out. And I oh, no, shit. <laughs> so I, I kind of, I, for me, in the back of my mind, I was saying, I knew it's the difference between success and failure, personally, because as much as Ronnie Lane's voice was great, and everyone's voice was, was, was good, it's, I knew Rod's voice was great. So I dug my heels in, and I won. I held it. So that's how we formed the faces. We, 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 we were jamming around the rest of the time. Rob was singing, hey, so we great So And Art Wood running against Brother got us a gig, a couple of gigs in the, in the colleges years ago. And we said, "Oh, well, we don't have a name." So we're looking down at this bowl of fruit. <laughs> so, and there was a big melon on the on the on the on the, on the, in, the in the fruit bowl. So. Yeah. So we're saying that 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 melon's not saying much, is it? So so, so we so it's a quiet melon. So we could call ourselves the Quiet Melon. <laughs> Fucking stupid name, it's Quiet melon. So we had a good laugh with that. So anyway, anyway, we ended up uh, we bumped, bumped, and we found I found this guy called Billy Gaff, who said I met him in the Speakers' League Club, and he said it's a bit of, it's a bit gay, you know, one of those. And they said, he said, um, he said, oh, I can get you out of your contract with, with the media. I said, oh, actually, you can, great. So right, ne- next week I got the, the boys down, Lloyd Woody and everyone. I said, look, there's a Billy, he can get us out of uh, our contract. Not realising later on that media went bust, so that's why I'm not. <laughs> so we were already out of a bloody contract. But uh, anyway, we got to know Billy, and Billy got us a few, a few more gigs in. So that's that's how we met Billy Gap and, and Billy Gaff became our manager.
0: Now, how did you go from uh, melon to faces? Well, what happened was uh,
1: uh, we we got we got a deal with Warner Brothers, right? and uh, so uh, the contract. They went up there to sign it, and uh, I noticed in the, the, it said it said small faces on it as the name of the band. So I said, hold oh, on, I mean, we're not the Small Faces, we're nothing like that. We're completely, completely, completely different band. We don't play any Small Faces album. That's it. But basically, they turn around and in the night show and said, "Well, if you if you don't sign it as a Small face, you can't have this money, this this advance." So fuck <laughs> it. So, so we agreed that we would call ourselves the Small Faces, and the name of the album was called First Step. He said, but thereafter, we're going to be called Faces because there's nothing small about us. We've got to drop it. It's small. As at first start, Rod and Ronnie were a little bit taller than the rest of us. A lot taller.
0: <laughs> so what is it like when you start getting success with the Faces? What's the difference from the success of the Small Faces? Because as you said, it must have been a completely oh. different crowd and more maybe musical appreciation.
1: It was a huge, huge difference because basically, you know, you you left one band which is teeny bubble screaming, God knows what. Um, also, we, we were playing in America as well, so we just, small places never went to America. So we found ourselves in America, and um, turning the boards and playing in little clubs and stuff. And we did it the hard way in America, so we, we, it was word of mouth in America because we play one, we play one club in New York. By the time we got to Boston they'd already heard of us. So it's just, so our, our reputation preceded us. I mean, we went up doing this across everywhere. I mean, we got to Detroit where well, I think we really broke. Glen East, um, yeah, people love to sound. We used to love going of Detroit. So, and then, so so we became bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, yeah, a record out, spaces an album. And then, Rod, so, I mean, kind a long story short now, Lloyd released uh, on his solo stuff, Maggie May. So, we ended up playing Maggie May, and then the F- F- Faces songs and stuff like that. So, in the end, we were kind of doing it, it as a mixture of the two. A bit of Rod, a bit of, a bit of Faces in it. So, um, we, we ended up becoming a massive stadium band, which was fantastic. I mean... One time, I think it was uh, bigger than the Stones at one point.
0: And you're still a young guy. I mean, I mean, what? how is that changing your life? I mean, you you probably don't have a lot of anonymity because people know you. I mean, now you're going back to, it's not teeny bopper, but it's older people, a little bit older, who are all knowing you because you're playing stadiums. I mean, how does that affect you? I mean, well, were you partying you know, I, a lot I, or what were you doing?
1: Well, it was kind of, you, you got, meant to be. You I mean, you get used to it. And you become a stadium band, so you think di- different. You play slightly differently. You don't get so technical because it, the recording equipment in the early days just wasn't there. So you simplify a lot of things, just to, you know, to make get, to get the music across. But it was it was fantastic yeah,
0: to, to play these places. Now, what happened with the faces? And when did you guys decide to end it? Was it because Rod's solo career was getting too big, or what happened?
1: Um, well, no, it wasn't that. It was, it was the fact. That, uh, Woody said, oh, "I could be quite friends with uh, Mick uh, Mick Jagger at the time because uh, we all were." You know, he said, "He said, uh, he said um, Mick Taylor's left the, left the Stones." He said, "But they've asked me if I can fill in while they find another guitarist." We, we said no, well, it's fine. Yeah, go and do it, you know? But you keep yourself together because our tour starts when they start. When their tour starts, my tour starts in, in in Florida. And when Ronnie came back, we all met up in Florida, uh, in Miami. And uh, we were standing in that house. Ocean was it one, two, one? Ocean Boulevard. Eric Clapton's album. That, yeah. that particular that particular house. So we all rehearsing now, and then, uh, but Woody came back like more like see it, the faces and and the stones were pretty much the same sort of vibe, you know. way we dressed, the way we talked, where we, talk, we played music, but Woody came back a little slightly different. He came back more like a stone than than the face. And Rod and, and I got to talking there in, uh, on the beach, and I said so we kind of thought you know, the writing's on the wall here. Yeah. so we agreed to start a band I don't know so we put we a band together when, and it was we had, had uh, Billy Peake on on, uh, on guitar you know like great Chuck Berry listen and Phil Chen on bass Uh Gary Granger on, on lead guitar, and it's a pretty good band. Now, uh, we, because by this time we knew that 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 Ronnie was joining the Stones, we just knew. So we did that, and I got I just bowled out at the last minute. I said, "No, I can't do this. I can't be seen as." So I starting a backing band and uh, being not a backing band, but it, was, it was all equal. But I, I just couldn't. Do, I just felt not right about it. So I said, "Look, Ron, I can't, can't do this." I said, oh, "Sorry." I didn't really and everybody understood. That was it. So even off and started doing his solo
0: stuff with and with the same band. Basically, I think they got Carmen and to into play. So. How does the Who come about? Cuz that's when I still remember seeing it was I believe it was your first tour. It was at the it was 79 and it was the Spectrum and I know the Cincinnati Tragedy had happened a week before the Spectrum. You played two nights in the Spectrum. And uh how did it come about that you joined the Who? Cuz that was my first that was one of my first concerts and I saw you on the drum kit which was amazing cuz I was like now talking to you I'm like holy crap. I mean that was I think my first concert was Yes, and the Who was my second concert, and it was just timing. Cool. But how did you end up in the Who?
1: Long story, going back again to the the sixties and the Small Faces, and the Who used to tour a lot to get together, and we toured Australia, uh, New Zealand, um, and and kind of long story short again, because I'll be here forever. You know, it was it was. Uh, I got to I was really good friends with with, with with the with the Who and I used to I used to do demo Pete and I used to play his little his sound song I backed onto the Thames uh, and I used to go up, go up there and play on you know drums with them doing these little demos and stuff and whilst I was in the phases, they asked me if I'd play on on, on Tommy the soundtrack of Tommy So I said, yeah, no problem. So I played on the soundtrack at the time. Whilst I was sitting in the faces. So it's kind of... In those days, there was nothing strange about it because basically it was like being in one great big band because there's only a few, half a dozen or a dozen sort of big bands around at that time. Very small music industry was. So I thought nothing more of it. I don't know. So I, I started forming a band once the Faces had finished. I started forming a band with um, Glyn Johns. And we were putting together we had a, a record deal with Atlantic Records. So we put together this, what we call, half English, half American band, which is fantastic. A uh, great little band. Tim, Tim Rennick, guitarist, was in it as well. Um, uh, my drum roler at the time, it's a guy called Bill Harrison. He used to look after Keith's stuff as well, um, and so we kind of shared him in a sense as a drum roler. One day, Bill said, "Me, you're going to get the call." I said, "What call?" He said, "Well, he said, I said, yeah. he said well Keith's, you know, dead now." I so I know. I said, well, "I'm so i just sign the band," you know. He said, "Well, yeah. so anyway, I ended up getting a call from." Bill Kirby, the who's manager. And he said, Kenny, I'll come straight to the point. I'll never get these words. I mean, I can't make this up. <laughs> you remember these things. I'll come straight to the point. They all got together. They still want to stay together as a band. And they want you to join the band and not, consider it, not considering anyone else. So, well, oh, Bill, that's very, that's very flattering. So very nice of you. So I said, but I can't. He went, what? I so, said, so I said, look, he said, well, Pete, I said, well, I'm already, I told Bill, I said, I'm already forming a band, mclean Johnson, a producer. I said, but, you know, he said, well, Pete's coming into the office later on today. Well, you know, why don't you come and see him? I said, yeah, I love, love, love him more. You know, I'm great with Pete. So I went I took his office in Wardour Street, it was only in, so. And I said, so we ended up sitting there talking about the good old days, about touring and the small faces and the faces and the, so small face and the, the home touring all over the place. Um, we had a great laugh, and then suddenly Pete just went, "You've got to join the band. You're one of us." <laughs> so, so he said, "You know, you, you're a mod you know all that." He said, "He said you've got to join us." I said, "Well, so looked, I said, look, I've got. I told him all about the band. I said, look, I feel pretty bad, we we got the band together. To it's a fit, really good band. And they're, funny enough, they're over here at the moment for a week rehearsing." So he he said, uh, I said, Look on the way home I'll go and have a work with the band and I said see what happens. So on the way home I stopped it. I went I said, I said said to everybody that I said, Look, guys, I have just been asked to join the Who and they straight away went, You've got to join the band, you you've got to do it, Kenny. You've got so I to again the seal of approval by a band I was forming. I think they were trying to get rid of me. <laughs> so
0: so what is it like when you join them? They're the who. I mean, and you had the success with the faces, but you become all of a sudden, and you're taking Keith's place. So, you know, it's like anything with someone. What's it like when you take, because Keith was such a um, larger than life figure.
1: Absolutely. Completely different drama to me. I'll tell you. That's so what I said in our major. I said, look, you know, should I end up joining the band? I said, there's no way I'm going to be copying, copying Keith Moon. Because Mooney was a, apart a great mate and a great player in his own right, and in it, his different, you know, everyone sort of has their own style. You know, it's very important. That every bat, every drummer, every great drummer has a, has their own style. It's so our unique way of playing. But I said, there's no way. I said certain things that I, I can, I, I like Keith's feels on certain things that I, you know, do that and, you know, because I want to do them. So said, but other than that, there's no more, I said, I'm a completely, I'm a straighter drummer. I'm not really. And even Keith, uh, Pete said, look, you know, he said, when, when when Keith played, he said, he got all out and all over the place, and he go in and out of time. He said, but he always come back in time. You never know where he'd go. <laughs> so we all kind of followed him. He said, great. Yeah. I said, so, so let's get that straight. I'm not actually copying Keith. That's exactly what I said, I can give you me, and that's it. So that's what I did. I put me there.
0: So I want to ask you the who, and I, I love stories about Live Aid. Because yeah. me, I live ten, I, I 10 minutes from Philadelphia, and I'm so still pissed I missed the concert. But it was one of those times that they showed it on TV. Like you didn't see concerts on TV. Tell me about Live Aid. How was it for you? I mean, because it was such a big event, and everyone just says there was a certain magic in the air. Tell me what it was like for you guys. Well, we had a call from
1: Bob Geldof who said he was doing his charity gig. He said we'd like to have a chat with us. So we ended up meeting him. But it's a little wine bar by the side of the London Palladium. And we went down there. By this time, you know, don't forget, we were all drinking there. So, but don't forget, I, When I joined the hoop, it was, it was chaos. Chaos was from this day one because I was going through a divorce. John Emerson was going for a divorce, and so was so was Pete Townsend. So we're all we're all in the bottle, except Roger. was just like, "Oh, fucking hell!" Yeah. So um, anyway, so you know, years later, you know, live aid now. <clears throat> so Bob Geldof saw us about this. Giggy was doing. Did he like, like us to do it? So everyone agreed to do it. Yeah, no problem. And. uh, I mean, we, said we, were, we only had to play for like half an hour 20 minutes or whatever so we agreed to do it and that's how we did live it I mean I'll never forget live it you know by this time I I I bought a couple of, I had a few bob in my pocket and I I bought a couple of toys one of them was was a, a Rolls Royce and uh, and a helicopter <laughs> and the reason I go into the helicopters the funny enough is because Roger, funny enough, i bought a helicopter way before, when he had Sheffield Studios, and he, he his pilot took us up for a for a ride round the window. and and I I just, I just loved it, you know. But then I forgot, put that to bed, went to one side. Then I I got bumped into for another friend of mine, who was just happened to be a helicopter pilot. I said, funny enough, yeah, I said something I like to do, signing so up. Uh, learning how to fly in, in 19, 1982, 1982, no, 83. So I got my licence. I learned an old Bell 47, a mash run. It was a big problem. Then I progressed to the jet ranger and the squirrel. I was converting to the squirrel. And uh, so I remember had to, we had to be at Live Aid right, at um, nine o'clock in the morning. So I decided I lived outside London, so I flew into Paris Airport, landed the, the, the helicopter, started there, and I then came into Live Aid one. There are two helicopters: one Live Aid one and Live Aid two, and they were quite big helicopters. So you had to take off go to the takeoffs backwards, uh, so pulling back like the to, to transitional thrust, big time. So the, the one of the pilots said to me, "So would you like to sit, sit in a co-pilot seat?" And um, go, co-pilot the, the, the helicopter. I said, "Yeah." In those days, if you if you if you've been a co-pilot in any helicopter, you could put it in your your log, your pilot Okay. So I've got that in my log. <laughs> so we took off. We flew. To uh, Wembley Stadium, we had to land in an old cricket ground next door because you couldn't land in the stadium. And so, um, so and then I had my my, my Rolls Royce meet me. me in my, so I stepped out of this helicopter and into this Rolls Royce. Went to the stadium across the road, and, and then did, did the old. If you look on, if you look on, starting live, you see me, Roger Taylor, and everybody involved in. So, Prince Charles and Lady Diana uh, opening the stadium and whatever. And even you know, in the Queen film, you know, you see, that's, the actual footage is right there. It makes me laugh every time I see it. Uh, so then what I do is did everything in reverse. I said, okay, so could, you know, we got over the opening ceremony, get back in the car, get to the, uh, the big helicopter to do it. And I went back to the heliport, got my helicopter, so went back home. Well, I used to live, just outside London, and watched it on TV.
0: <laughs> what was it, what was there, was there a certain energy though, like backstage, I mean, did it feel, Oh yeah, you but like I didn't spend,
1: or... yeah, I didn't want to spend all day there, because you ain't around, because it's, it's just like another gig, you know, and, uh, so, and it, it was like, they had the Hard Rock Cafe there, you know, backstage, and that sort of thing, but, um, it was a lot, it was a long day, it would been a long day, so we were on about, I can't remember what time we were on about, sort of, Four o'clock, it's about like three or four o'clock. So, what I did was I watched it on TV and I took off for my garden. Uh, and about an hour before we were going to play, oh, I was going there an hour before to, and did it in reverse and over And I took a part of me to take there to go to bed. And, uh, and that was it. Yeah, so, and then my, my car was still there, so I, at the end of the day, I could get home somehow. <laughs> Now, now so those real rock star sort of decadent <laughs> horrible things to do and I
0: I, I I did it so so but you know what I i did it um it's fun now now with the who you're on a few albums and I know I love the song eminent front and uh were you how, how what was the recording of that like i mean the beginning's got a the keyboard but did you ever say when you bring the drum tracks in or how did that work well we did it at glenn Johns' House and he had a
1: private studio in his house, and we did the uh, eminence on there. P came up with a song on the rear from the so, so it's just like oh, it's a great song. But it's a little turning there, it? it's a great groove. You see, once again, a great groove. Once you've got a great song, a great tune, you can actually, you, you, it becomes part of you. Once it's part of you, you play great to it. So, and that's it. So, and like, you bet, you bet. So, another great song. So, so and I just felt, you know, and one of the other songs which I wish the Who would have done was when, I, when Pete asked me to do it on his solo album, and, I, uh, and he played Rough Boys. And I said to Pete at the time, Rough Boys is a Who song. He meant, no, it's not. <laughs> so, so, well, I think it is. He said, no, it's not. I, I still to this day think it would have been a, have been a great song. Rough boys, with a great time and a great up,
0: upbeat song, very hooey. So I wish we could have done that. So, what happened with the Who? You played for a while. I mean, is it something that you grow out of it, or you just did you want to go in directions? No, because basically, you... everyone, you know,
1: everyone was sort of we were not touring and doing whatever, so long gaps in between and everything, and then I could see that the who were like not sure about what they were going to do, so. I, by this time, I was doing, I did the arms tour for Ronnie Lane to raise money for multiple sclerosis. And on that tour was me, Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page, you know, you name it, they're on it. Um, Bill Wyman and me and Charlie Watts playing drums. And Ray Cooper was sitting in the middle of us. And we had a lot. Of, we great. I'm just raising money. And we started America. Did a few gigs from the Princess Trust in the, in the Albert Hall. And then we moved they just decided to take it to America to raise even more money on a little tour there. So we did that. Um, um uh, Paul Oh god my name not let me take a step. I can't talk now, man. Paul Rogers uh, hang on, let me have a Paul Rogers was singing on the tour as well. Paul and I got I already knew Paul from way back then. We got together and talked about a lot more. Got to know each other quite well, and I bumped into him again after the tour uh, in in a club in London, and he said, "Oh, just a man, I want to see you." I said, "What's up, boy?" He said, "So, I think we should start a band." I said, "Great." So that's how it started with the law. So by this time, we, we put, we recorded some songs, and it was great stuff, you know. So we got a record deal with. Um, I'd moved on by then, I put in my head, you know, they were, they were kind of doing different things, Pete was doing his solo, um, Roger was doing this, uh, lots of stuff, and actually, and I wasn't sure whether they were going to stay together or not, so I kind of, I, I, was, I was enjoying working with Paul Rogers, So let's put it that way.
0: So after that, you guys did one album, but then you now you formed the Jones Gang, and now you guys are doing a concert in July, am I right?
1: Yeah, we are. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's it's called uh, Guildfest. Now it, was, it used to take place in Guildford, but the borough council just after after the pandemic said they didn't want any didn't want to do that that Guildfest there anymore. they had been doing it for years. They so came to me in my club because we got a license to do outdoor gigs, and whatever. we have 200 acres there. We can fit. We do concerts ourselves, so so they said, "Would you do it here?" I so he said, "Yeah, great, come in." So that's how we've been, uh, we get. So providing my bank and pay on the bill.
0: So, so you've been in the business. You've been in these great groups. I want to ask you before we go: the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. What was that like? Was is, as a musician? Because there's people saying, "Oh, well, the Dolly Parton shouldn't be in there," or this. You know, people are arguing. But as someone who's part of it, is that a huge honor? And what was the ceremony like?
1: Yes, I, I didn't realize how much of a huge honor it was because basically, I mean, it's like it's like being knighted in, in this country—the same sort of feeling in America when you when you're inducted into the Rock Hall of Fame. It's it's the people that induct you, you know, they vote for you, and it's I just I just felt. Fantastic because we were inducted twice in the same time—one for the small faces and one for the faces. So I felt really proud of myself and i was proud of all my band members, of so Steve and you know Steve and Ronnie couldn't be there, you know. But luckily Mac was still alive then. So I ended up taking Steve Merritt's daughter there, and so so when we got to that bit where small faces we received their their bit of award. I got Molly, Steve's daughter, to receive it. It's just lovely. And so uh, it's just a very special time. Now, do you still talk to the guys in the WHO? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I played with the, the the guys. I mean, Pete and Roger came to I I called them up because I had prostate cancer. And I decided to raise a lot of my, my money and awareness for, well, not so much the money, but the awareness to, to get people to go and check their, you know, their. Prostrate out because it's a, a terrible, terrible cancer. It creeps up on you, and it can be stopped. So I called up uh, Bill Kirby. I said, "Look, I said, uh, can you ask uh, Pete and Roger if they'd like to do this concert with me?" Cause I said, "Because raising money for prostate cancer." And, they, and Bill said, "No," he said, came out straight away. He said, "Yeah, no, boys would love to do it." So, so Peter and Roger turned up, and we ended up doing, uh, doing one of the concerts and they
0: said, yeah, we don't
1: need to rehearse. Kenny knows the songs. <laughs>
0: Great. Now, when, do you have a date of when the, uh, The Faces album will be coming out? Is there any... No, not really, because, uh, I mean, I wish I could say tomorrow, but
1: I can't, because we're still working, because what's got in the way, everyone's got a backlog of work. Gigs have been cancelled because of the pandemic. So right now, Woody's been on tour with, we, we was working on it, and it's had to stop, because, um, uh, Stones had to go and do a European tour to get that out of the way again, and that was backing up. And so now they're doing the English, sorry, the, sorry, the London gigs and yeah, or the England gigs, and that's going to end soon. And at the same time, Rod had to do um, Vegas and things that were backing up there. So, so that's all. get yeah, that's all going to come to a, a, an end so I mean, slowly as the summer progresses then I I think we're going to go back in the studio and we start recording a few songs.
0: So when it's finished is the answer to that. One final question. Well, a request. Tell me one great rock and roll story. (coughs) God, I knew you were going to ask me that. (laughs) I need to hear one. (laughs) Okay, well, Keith Moon's in all of them. (laughs) Well, tell me a good one. Tell me one with you and Keith. Um, well, when the, the Who and the Small Faces used to tour, right, I
1: know. up, um, by my bad luck, going in the, the room next door to Keith Moon. And so, oh, I'm, you know, when you get in your room, you check it out, you've got one of those like desks along the wall, and it's got a plug on there, it, you know, whatever, so, and a drawer. And I thought, okay, so so I'm sitting on this, on this sofa, and I just all of a sudden I could hear this noise coming from underneath this will be the desk part of the, this whole thing. It, it's getting louder and louder, and scratching on the wall. God, I have got mice in here and stuff. I can't believe it. So all of a sudden, it's uh, getting louder and louder. And suddenly, I get down on my, my knees and looking at the wall, and then suddenly the wall started to move underneath this desk thing. So it started going, bang, bang. Like it's like tearing apart, you know. So, and then suddenly, bang. A big hole in it, and Keith Moon stuck his head through and
0: said, let come to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now that's a story. Kenny, I want to thank you. People, uh, go to Kenny's website, kennyjones.com. It's K-E-N-N-E-Y, jones.com. It's great. You can find his whole history. There's a shop. It's just wonderful. And check out all the music from The Small Faces, The Faces, The Who. When the new album comes out, please check that out. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 900 episodes. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.
1: Let right. me plug that as well.